going to kick off episode 396 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear with the song Dracula. It's from the album Surf Sessions, which is by the surf band Ted Boys Marinos. They're based out of Sao Paulo, Brazil, and I found them on Bandcamp. Just look up Ted Boys Marinos Brazil.bandcamp.com and check out the album Surf Sessions. You can pick it up for five bucks. 14 songs are all good. And well, Dracula, I thought was appropriate because we're talking about a Dracula film this week. By the way, my name's Derek M. Cook, the writer, host, and producer of this here podcast. And the Dracula film that we're talking about is a Hammer film. It is the Dracula film from Hammer. Dracula, or if you're here in the States, or of Dracula with my man Peter Cushing, my man Christopher Lee, and a whole bunch of other really cool, well, men and women involved. It's just a great film. I'm really excited to talk with Stephen Patrick Lee. Steve Lee is a friend of the show, and he's the one that I'm going to be discussing horror of Dracula with. Of course, we'll play around with the Classic Five as well and talk about a few other things along the way because that's what us monster kids do when we get together and start talking about monster movies. Of course, Kenny sent in his segment telling us how Horror of Dracula was represented in Famous Monsters of Filmland. And you know who's back on the show this week? My wife, Brenda. She's joining me for the feedback discussion at the end of the show where we respond to a voicemail, an email. I put her on the spot about it being Thanksgiving. We talk about one of our cat, well, actually all of our cats and, well, just a bunch of other things because, again, you know, we just chit-chat and whatever. Anyway, that's what's happening in this show this week. Why don't we go ahead and get to all that right after this. And the monster from hell. Scream number two. Captain Kronos, vampire hunter. All shock. Frankenstein and the monster from hell. Plus Captain Kronos, vampire hunter. In color, both rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Imagine the world around you is nothing but an illusion. Creatures of legend wage endless wars between shadow and light, but you never see it. Even now, dark forces threaten reality as we know it, but most people never know they exist. This is the world I walk in. I am called Byron. And these are my chronicles. The Byron Chronicles. Available at ericbosbypresents.com, iTunes, Stitcher, and everywhere else podcasts are available. I'm William Castle, and I feel obligated to warn you about the next attraction you will see at this theater. The picture is The Tingler, which I directed. 
And for the first time in motion picture history, members of the audience, including you, will actually play a part in the picture. You will feel some of the physical reactions, the shocking sensations experienced by the actors on the screen. I guarantee that The Tingler has more shocks per minute than my last film, The House on Haunted Hill. But don't be alarmed. You can protect yourself. When you see the picture, you will be told and remember the instruction how you can guard yourself from attack by the tingler. And now may I show you a few scenes from the tingler? Monster Kid Radioheads, this is Kenny with your look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today's movie, Horror of Dracula, was first mentioned in Famous Monsters No. 2, which celebrated 1958 as the Year of the Monsters. Monster fans never had it so good, with a magazine all your own and at least a million movies. Well, at least 75. The article went on to name those 75 films, including today's Hammer Classic. Horror of Dracula made its next appearance in issue number 32 from March of 1965, as, of all things, a comic adaption. It was presented by Jeff Jones and Joe Orlando, comic icons of the 60s and 70s, whose work can be seen in Mad, DC, Marvel, and the Warren Horror Comics. The story is told from Van Helsing's point of view and focuses on the beginning of the film, then briefly summarized the middle section before the horrifying conclusion. This comic was reprinted in issue 50 from July of 1968. In Monster World No. 9, also known as FM 78, from July of 1966, Horror of Dracula was featured in a photo comic. Almost identical in story to the comic version, it has actual photos from the movie rather than comic art. It does cover more of the middle section of the film, so it is longer than the comic version. In FM 98, from May of 1973, a speech given by the star of Horror of Dracula, Christopher Lee, to the Count Dracula Society was transcribed and printed. Here is what he had to say about the character of Dracula. I would like you to understand that I personally feel that the character of Dracula, and now we are really getting to the point of this whole society, has, over the years, unfortunately and for various reasons, lost its meaning and lost its impact. This is a great creation. This character is a great character, a heroic figure a figure of tremendous strength, power, ferocity, and appeal. There are many things involved in Stoker's Dracula, and to a certain extent, we have been able over the years to bring them out. I do feel that what's been happening recently is a little unfortunate. I've made no secret of this at all in England, and I'm quite prepared to stand by it. Probably some of you in this room will agree with me there. It's a pity to get further and further and further away from the original idea that was in the mind of the author when he wrote it. I can only tell you that as far as I'm concerned, no matter what the vehicle may be or no matter what the story may be, I will try as much as I can, if I ever play it again, to be true to the spirit of Bram Stoker. And I am going to do it once more. 
This is Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Monster Kid Radio listeners, you know I love my Hammer films. In fact, as of this recording, I just had a chance to see the horror of Dracula on the big screen, and now I get to talk about the movie with another big fan of the film, Steve Lee. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, and I'm a little jealous of you. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to rub it in, but it was awesome. I can imagine. I, I rewatched it last night to kind of refresh myself on a few things, but that was first on my phone and on TV, and then I just, I know it doesn't compare to the big screen. That had to have been incredible. It was pretty phenomenal. I was down at the Northwest Film Center, and I'm, I'm a little bummed because... It wasn't a sold-out audience. I, I was really hoping that the place was going to be packed, but, you know, I'd say the theater maybe had about uh, just under half capacity. Oh, no. Now, to be fair, another theater in another part of town was showing Phantasm and had Don Coscarelli in town signing his new book. So I wonder if a lot of the horror fans were over at that instead of seeing Horror of Dracula, but man, they just don't know what they were missing. Yeah, th- yeah, I, I get it. This is the weekend that the new Halloween movie debuts, so I know a lot of people, oh. and that probably is getting a lot of people going to a theater as well. Yeah, good point. For me, if I was given that choice, here's X amount of money, Horror of Dracula or Halloween, and I'd say, well, Horror of Dracula, we'll catch Halloween at a later time, because hey. it stands up to repeated viewings over and over and over and never gets tiresome or weak. And that's how I know we're going to get along. <laughs> <laughs> I had such a great time. Uh, and, you know, to be there with friends, too, that's the other thing is, you know, you're in a movie theater and I know you're not talking during the movie, but it's a communal experience. And, you know, Dominique and Chris, friends of the show, they were there as well. And, wow. man, you could just hear everybody, you know, everybody around me, Chris and Dominique and them, get excited every time Peter Cushing turns up on screen. Well, yeah. It was just so much fun to see it. Yeah. 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 I think I'd posted on Facebook once where, Back in 77, uh, see, I was 16, so that tells everyone just how old a geezer I am. Uh, oh, come you on. Do the math. <laughs> but in 77, when I went to see Star Wars, I went because I knew Peter Cushing was in it. <laughs> I didn't know about the rest of the people. I'm like, Peter Cushing's in it? I'm there. Nice. And what a game changer it was. Yeah, Cushing was the main reason. I was a big fan since I was a kid. Well, I want to talk about that, uh, how much you love the movie, your experiences with the movie, but you've been listening to the show. You know there's something we have to do first. Oh, that's right. There is. That's right. So for listeners who don't know, we play a game here on the show called The Classic Five. I've got a deck of cards here, and each one of these cards has a this or that, which movie do you prefer style question. You know, I know I just called it a game, but really it's a conversation starter. Steve, are you ready to play The Classic Five? Well, that's a good question. I'd have to say mostly ready. Trepidatiously. Okay. If trepidatiously <laughs> is indeed a word, which I doubt. But go ahead. It is, it is this early in the morning for me. <laughs> okay. 
There are no wrong answers, so I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, here we go. Card number one right off the top. Question number one, what is your favorite classic monster movie sequel? Oh, that's a good one. Classic monster movie sequel. I'm going to have to go with uh, Invasion of Astro Monster. Oh. Yeah, well, I'm a big kaiju fan as well. I even got Godzilla's name tattooed on my arm, so that's how big a fan I am. And <laughs> using the original Go- Gojira or Godzilla King of the Monsters as that's the original, everything else is a sequel. I'd have to say Invasion of the Astro Monster has everything you could possibly want in a good kaiju movie. And so there are others that are as good, but that's the one I'd give the edge to. Good call. And since you are a kaiju fan, now I'm going to pull out the kaiju deck and pull one from there. Ah, here we go. What's your favorite flying kaiju? Rodan. Oh, see, again, this is why we're going to get along. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, yeah, I, I love I, me some Rodan. I do, too. I love that. In the original movie, I guess it's like I had told you earlier about the horror of Dracula. It stands up to repeated viewings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The earlier kaiju films, like before they started gearing towards the kid, had some real, some real scary moments, and Rodan's got some near Lovecraftian terror happening, mm-hmm. and I really respond well to that. Oh yeah, so good. Exactly. Just to kind of dovetail off that, what are your thoughts on Rodan being in the new, the upcoming Godzilla film from Legendary? Well, I'm looking forward to it because again, it's a character that I I love, and I guess they're bringing back Mothra and King Ghidorah as well. So it's going to be just full of the classic kaiju, I imagine, reimagined. They're probably going to try and stick with the classic look, but add a little something. And they're more than likely going to be all CGI. So I have to say I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. That's about how I was, too, until I saw the shot in the trailer where Rodan is streaking across the top of a city and leaving this sonic devastation in his wake. And then oh, I was like, yeah. okay, I'm in. Yeah. But, oh. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you bet. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm getting all goosebumpy here about it. Oh, me, me too. Goosebumpy. There's another word. There's another word. All right. Card number three. Okay. <laughs> yeah, let's get back on track. Here we go. Card number three. What classic monster movie should be turned into a musical? <laughs> classic monster movie turned into a musical. I would love to see a musical version of The Tingler. <laughs> Oh, yeah? Although that's more of a scary movie than a monster movie. Although the Tingler, I guess, does count as a monster of sorts. Sure. I'm just imagining what kind of crazy musical number you'd have when he's on the LSD. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. That's where they have to pull out the old Hendrix or Eric Clapton with Cream or something. You know, just... (laughs) But, yeah, just... Well, I love the Tingler. I love the William Castle movies and... I mean, heck, they made a musical out of Little Shop of Horrors, so why not give The Tingler a try? I love it, man. I love it. All right. Card number four. Oh, and this is appropriate, and I didn't plan this. Oh, excellent. The day that we're recording is actually this man's birthday. What's your favorite Bela Lugosi film? Oh, wow. I have to pick just one, right? Because uh, I, I, <laughs> there's a lot of Bela Lugosi I like. Dracula, of course, comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Well, I will preface that with by saying he's actually I, I love him in the role but he's not my favorite dracula personally but okay but after having watched the movie so many times dracula is just you know wonderful but then i've also seen him in the black cat oh good gosh i mean i could be flippant and say plan nine from outer space but i'm not going to do that 
Um, <laughs> favorite Lugosi role. It's hard to pick just, you know, because I, I can pick and choose from a lot of the movies where the Island of Lost Souls, I thought he did a great job in. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with the, the easy answer and say Dracula, because he truly owned that role. Yeah. You know, like I said, he's not my personal favorite, but props to him for completely owning that role to the point of probably, I'd say it stifled his career somewhat. Kind of like William Shatner with Captain Kirk had to live that down for long. Lugosi had to live down Dracula because he did such a great job at it and showing Dracula's nobility. So I'm going to go with that one. I am Dracula. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula, the original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? What's he done to you, dear? Tell me. He came to me. And he made me drink. And final question, final card. I'm going to pull this from the Hammer deck. If you could have been on set during the production of one particular Hammer film, which one would it have been? If I could be on the set? Yeah, while they were shooting. Ooh. Ooh. I'm going to say the one that we're probably going to talk about, Horror of Dracula. I'd love to have seen that. I'd have to go back in time because I wasn't born yet. But mm-hmm. using the time machine to go back, I'd sneak out onto that set and just watch them do their thing, watch them make that magic. Although Dracula AD 72, that would be fun, but mostly for the mod part of it because, you know, it was groovy. Uh, <laughs> Dig the music, kids. <laughs> and yeah, well, and uh, Curse of the Werewolf, that was Hammer, right? Yep. Okay, that one too. That's the one that popped in my head. When you mention that, other than Horror of Dracula, Curse of the Werewolf, I'd love to have been there to see that go on. Oh, wow. All right, well, that was the Classic Five. How do you feel, Steve? Well, I actually feel pretty good. I could do five more, but we have to move on. Yeah, we, well, we do have some business to get to. We've got to talk about what is arguably one of the absolute best Hammer films of all time, 1958's Horror of Dracula. This is the story of Dracula. A creature who destroys all whom he touches. Dracula the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. You must help me. You must. You're my only hope. You must. I'll help you. I promise.
try and understand. This is not Lucy, the sister you loved. It's only a shell, possessed and corrupted by the evil of Dracula. How do you destroy a fiend who has so far proven himself indestructible? Those who come to end his reign of terror stay to become his victims. Castle Dracula is summoned here in Klausenburg. Will you tell me how I get there? You ordered a meal, sir. As an innkeeper, it's my duty to serve you. When you've eaten, I ask you to go and leave us in peace. This is the doctor who dares to challenge the vampire Dracula. This is the anguished man who fears for the lives of his beloved, the girl who is his sister, and the one that is his wife. Dracula, the bedeviled master of all that is evil. You know, when you look at it, Christopher Lee does not have a lot of lines in that movie. You know, he never did in any of the Dracula movies. He really never had much to say. But his presence is felt throughout the entire thing because he is just such an iconic, magnetic presence. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those performances when they get on screen, you can't take your eyes off him. Mm-hmm. Magnetic, that's a great word for it because, yeah, it's just your wow. When we were watching it last night, the minute he turns up on screen, even though he's putting on the charm, he's like, I welcome you to my home. You could feel the atmosphere in the theater just change. Just everybody mm-hmm. was just drawn to this man and just couldn't stop. <laughs> There's just something about oh, him. Yeah. You know, we were talking about Lugosi owning the role of Dracula, and maybe to his detriment, Dracula kind of owned him as well. Whereas in this case, Lee owned Dracula, and mm-hmm. he, he was the man when it came to this. And he's just impossible to not watch. Like I said, Lugosi to me really emphasized Dracula's nobility. Mm-hmm. You know, I believed he was an actual count. You know, now not that Lee didn't show the nobility, but from him, I definitely see the aura of strength in this Dracula. This is one Dracula you don't mess with. A number one. <laughs> you know, or Lugosi's Dracula might have verbally slapped you around. Uh, Lee's He's going to slap you around. And then his eyes were just so intense in every scene. Even when he's, like you said, he's, he's being charming. He's like, well, I hope you ate well and everything. Let me show you to your room. Here we go. Let me pack your bag up. And you're like, oh, wow, he's really being nice. And then, but there's that air of menace just underneath it. You know, that's a really good way to put it. Uh, Lugosi has the royalty, the regalness. You're absolutely right. And while Lee does have that, it really comes from a place of strength with him. And I, that's a really good way to compare the two. There's just something about Lee that you're drawn to him. He's charismatic, mm-hmm. but there's just an edge of terror underneath it all. You know, if you misstep, you're in trouble. And that's oh, before yeah. he even bears his fangs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just with his eyes, he did that. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, later with his eyes and fangs. Oh, yeah. He was probably the first of uh, the first Dracula as I was growing up. The first one I seen that actually I wasn't that scared of Lugosi when I saw him as a kid. Mm-hmm. But when I saw Christopher Lee as Dracula as a kid, I he put the fright in me. I'd be like, I, I would not want to meet him on a bad night. You know, just, <laughs> there's no stopping him. Well, I mean, there is stopping him, obviously, but I leave that up to Dr. Van Helsing. Who is another very important part of this film. Sure. Oh, so very much. Yeah. Peter, Peter Cushing appeared in a few other Hammer films prior to this, but he really made Van Helsing his. 
And while I do love the Universal Van Helsing a lot, I can't yeah. imagine that Van Helsing jumping around, chasing Dracula up and down stairs, jumping up on the table and grabbing the candlesticks. There's just a, mm-hmm. an action hero underneath the surface here. Yeah, exactly. And it's unexpected because he appears to be the, a very scholarly man, a very mm-hmm. bookwormish type. You know, he's a doctor. He does this. He seems gentle natured, but when push comes to shove, yeah, boom, there he is. Yeah. And you end up cheering for him. And so now, in my, again, this is for me and maybe some of the listeners as well. When I hear the words Dr. Van Helsing or Professor Van Helsing, Peter Cushing, first thing my mind goes to, boom. And then like one year it was like, no, it's Hugh Jackman. He's a character named Van Helsing. No, <laughs> Peter Cushing is Dr. Van Helsing. I don't know what. Hugh Jackman is playing, but <laughs> with apologies to Hugh Jackman, if you're listening, I love you, bud. You're, you're wonderful. I'm sure he is. Yeah. <laughs> no, you never know. Man. Well, yeah. Yeah. I, I do have some download numbers in Australia, so who knows? Um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> now Peter Cushing is the man. I cannot get enough Peter Cushing. And I know we haven't put out an episode in a while, but when we were doing 1951 Down Place, we couldn't shut up about the man, even when we were covering a movie that didn't have Peter Cushing in it. Um, there's just something about this guy, too. You know, I knew, I know that if Peter Cushing's on the case, it's going to be okay. It's going to be fun to watch yeah. and make it okay, but it's going to be okay. When he did Dr. Van Helsing, you got the idea that, yeah, he's going to take care of business. In the movie where, and spoiler alert, if anyone's hadn't seen already, when Jonathan Harker wasn't up to the task, when he came in, it's like, okay, now I know things are going to get taken care of. You put a confidence in his character. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you don't always get, you know, in the movie, you're like, you know, I don't think this guy's going to make it or, oh, I don't know, that vampire is too strong for him. But, you know, he took on the number one undead persona and and defeated him, at least for that for that time. Sure. It'd be a long line of dealing with him, though. (laughs) (laughs) There's a confidence in him without. The arrogance, which I really appreciate when Michael Goff's character, Arthur, starts wavering back and forth on whether or not, you know, it's his fault that Dracula is still running around because he didn't let them use Mina. I'm sorry, not Mina, but yeah, I guess it was Mina uh, as a way to lure Dracula or track Dracula. Van Helsing doesn't, you know, slap him as like, oh, well, it is your fault or anything. It's like, well, you didn't know. You know, and it's not your fault. You know, he, he's got this incredible bedside manner that oh, yeah. you don't off you don't enough see with the strong action hero type. And and make no mistake, he's an action hero in this, but he's also a scholar. He's making wax recordings talking about how to destroy vampires. He's reading diaries and he's doing it all. It's more than a one note character or mm-hmm. more than even a two note character that we seem to get a lot of nowadays, which mm-hmm. uh, that's for another discussion for another time. But <laughs> he truly he truly nuanced Dr. Van Helsing. I think he put a lot of stuff into this to make him fully rounded. Mm-hmm. And that full that that full embodiment of the character and the calm assurance that I know what I'm doing, I'm gonna take care of it. Not quite sure how, but I know what I'm doing. And the yeah, the calmness of his strength, I'll put it that way. <laughs> it's a good way to put it, too. 
Well, his strength was not blustery. A lot of times we see action heroes, you know, they're, they're very blustery about, well, that's right, I'm big and bad, and I'm going to take you down. Not Dr. Van Helsing. He's just going to simply say, to save the world, I'm going to have to destroy you, so hold on just a moment. <laughs> let me get these let me get these candlesticks and uh there's a very methodic scientific approach to what he's doing but there's still the supernatural part of it too that he embraces and accepts you know i know when i first saw the film do you remember the first time you saw this yeah i was about 11 i would say i want to say 11 or 12 i saw it on a creature feature i grew up in the south side of chicago and I watched the original Svengulli, who had a creature feature on. I believe that was the first time I saw Horror of Dracula as a kid. And I'd already seen Lugosi, but as a kid, when I saw Christopher Lee, like I said, that imprinted on me. And of course, with my last name being Lee, I asked my father for the third time, are we related? <laughs> and he's like, no. I'm like, are you sure? Is this, you sure this isn't my uncle Christopher? I'm sure. He's British. We have no British people in our family. Okay, because I'd already asked him about Stan Lee, and that didn't fly. And you can imagine the result when I asked him about Bruce. <laughs> of, of the three Lees that you'd prefer to be related to, which one would it be? It would be Christopher? It'd be Christopher. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love, Bruce, I, I love Bruce Lee. as a, he's a, That's a whole other action hero thing, but Christopher Lee has played so many great roles. That era mystery, what, he, what he's done in the past. And, mm -hmm. and the guy did a heavy metal album. I mean, how much does this, this guy totally rock? So, yeah, Christopher Lee all the way. I, I've told the story a couple of times on the show where somebody loaned me a couple of tapes with videotapes with all the hammer uh, Dracula and all the hammer Frankenstein films. And I just mainlined them over the course of a few days and fell in love mm -hmm. with all things hammer at that point. When I saw horror of Dracula, obviously it's a different take on the story. And I had mm -hmm. read the original Dracula novel. I did have a little difficulty the first time and, and I got over it pretty quickly reconciling what I was seeing in this film versus what I knew of the novel versus what I thought of the universal movie. Did that happen for you? Were you familiar with the novel at all? I got familiar with the novel later on as a teenager. Okay. I read Frankenstein by Mary Shelley first. And then, like you said, you compare that to universal and then you compare it to hammer. And, and the book is, is so rich in, in this stuff that they, they don't even touch on in the movies that I was like, okay, well, I guess the movie just took the basic bones of the story and said, okay, and we'll just make up stuff for our own. And so then I read Dracula. And yeah, I, it's hard to reconcile what you read and what, what's been shown. And I was 15 when I read uh, Dracula by Bram Stoker. And I'm like, okay, so none of the movies are like the book. They just took parts and characters and inserted them where they wanted. But that's what Hollywood does. And still does to this day. Yeah, pretty much. It's like, oh, you use some of the same character names. <laughs> That's about oh, yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they it's like they say, well, okay, we, we bought the rights to use the name. And that's all we got left. So now we got to make stuff up because then otherwise we owe more money. <laughs> I, at least it seems that way to me. <laughs> like when I saw Dracula Untold, I'm like, okay, really? Hmm. It was interesting, though. Uh, yeah. A uh, different take. Different take. Yeah, very different take on it. Mm -hmm. um, but not unwatchable, just kind of still, it didn't do it for me. But. Sure. 
they tried. Sure. Bless their heart. They're still trying to revamp that old Universal oh, character roster, and it's just not coming across. Well. Oh, revamp. Ah, I see what you did there. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, that that's a whole different conversation. Uh, is the Dark Universe dead? Is it coming back? Are they going to try again? Are they rebooting it again? Who knows? And I keep threatening to do like a long YouTube series about this, and, and someday I will. Mm -hmm. But yeah. well, I look forward to that. And, and yeah, there is so much about this film to fall in love with. You know, like I, and I love the Logosi Dracula. I'm a huge Bela fan. I'm, I'm on oh, board yeah. with Team Bela. Love Bela Logosi. That said, that original film is a little stagey. It's not as frenetic or kinetic. Yeah. It doesn't feel as full of life as this film Horror of Dracula does. Part of it's the black and white versus color. But beyond that, more so than anything Universal did, in my opinion, and, and that might be sacrilege considering what Strickfadden did on the Frankenstein films, the setting, the production design for Horror of Dracula, as well as pretty much every other Hammer film of this oh, era, yeah. is, is a character, is a presence. There is just something so cool about what they did. I, one of the things that somebody said to me as we were getting up and leaving the theater was that they just can't get over how amazing it looked, that the production design, the details were just so fantastic. Mm -hmm. And that person, Brian Callahan of the Lovecraft Film Festival, he is absolutely correct, absolutely right. Bernard Robinson's set design and production design. Yeah. He's as much of part of the puzzle here as everybody else. Yeah, I mean, he's just as important as everybody else here in the film. Once I got turned on, as I'll say, to the Hammer films, that I really grew to appreciate them. Yeah, the lush backdrop that all these people got to act in was fantastic. And yeah, I like how you put that. Uh, it's like, it's a, a genuine character in the film and it kind of does separate hammer productions from other monster movies because color being one thing. Yeah. But everything was so lush and just beautiful and detailed. And they meticulously took time to make sure that all this was here. It didn't seem like a set like in horror Dracula. When we're in castle Dracula, I can believe that we're in Castle Dracula. I know we're not, but when I look on the screen, it's like, what must have been like to just be able to look at that set and just, wow. It would have been amazing. Amazing. And make no mistake, I love the Universal stuff. I love those sets, mm -hmm. too. Oh. And, and that was the era where they were actually building them as fully functional basically properties. I mean, they were standing sets and you can run up and down them and do whatever you needed to. But there's just something about Bernard Robinson's set design here that mm -hmm. it's gorgeous. Oh, yeah. It's gorgeous. I mean, you feel the warmth from the curtains. You you want to go spin that globe around and you, you want to, you know, they keep yeah. talking about how they hired, well, supposedly hired Harker to be a librarian for Dracula here. I want to go to that library and pull every one of those books off the shelf and see what's there because you know, they're real books and uh, yeah. you know, it, there's just something about it. I want to visit that set. If I had to answer the question, at least today, what set would I want to go to? That's the one right there. Almost oh, definitely. And for actually for me as a, as a when younger, as a kid, basically when I first started watching these, the fact that I even noticed it, 
at the time is pretty amazing because most most young guys when they go to a movie they're not going to sit there and go oh you know the setting of this is fa- is fantastic or the setting of this is so lush and vibrant they're not they're in it for the action they're in it for the characters but you cannot help but notice this it is striking in how well it's done so that even as a you know even me as a when I was a, just a dumb teenager I got it I was like this is amazing and the only way to compare it would be to like Castle Dracula in the 1931 film, but that again was in black and white, but they knew how to use black and white sure. to great effect. Sure. You know, they knew they were dealing in light and shadow and wow, you know, Todd Browning knew what he was doing. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I, I don't want people to think that, uh, by praising this so much that we're not also enjoying what Universal did or any of the other studios did when it came oh, to vampire yeah. film. Please, please don't. When you asked earlier about my favorite sequel and I'd given a Kaiju answer, if I had to pick a universal answer, well, the obvious one would be Bride of Frankenstein because, wow, mm-hmm. talk about another magnificent movie with a great set and the characters and the time and attention and the performances by all the characters. I sure. could want about that one as well. So the other one was Kaiju, but if I've had to pick Monster, I'm going to go with Bride of Frankenstein. Sure. It was just amazing. But like I said, I learned to appreciate this as I grew older and through repeated viewings. Because growing up, I was a monster kid during what I consider to be a very fortunate time to be a monster kid. Because, you know, I was a little boy in the 60s and monsters and rock and roll were put together and we had the monsters and the Adams family and then creature features and then famous monsters of Filmland and just obviously I was the kid in the neighborhood who didn't get out much. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm busy reading my, my Marvel comics and famous monster books. Other kids were trading baseball cards and talking about what baseball player was better than the other. Whereas I'm sitting here going, well, let's see, I know who Stan Lee and Jack Kirby are. And I know who Uncle Forey, Forrest Ackerman. And uh, I know who did what, and what movie. That was just me. I was a monster kid at the beginning. And now I'm just an old monster kid. Well, monster kids never grow up. Monster kids never grow no. up. That's part of it. But we have the cooler movies is what I think. Uh, there you go. There you go. We have the cooler movies. And Christopher Lee, I think, has been pointed out on the internet. They pointed all the different characters he's played. And let's face it, you know, he was a Bond villain one time. He's been in Star Wars. He's been in Lord of the Rings. The uh, the guy just Sherlock Holmes. I mean, he's yeah, oh, he's yeah. tapped into and has been involved with so many incredible properties over the years. Uh, just he's amazing. And Cushing too. Cushing as oh, well. Yeah. Frankenstein, Dracula, oh, like, Sherlock like said, Holmes, huge, Star Wars, all of it. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge Peter Cushing fan, so yeah. I, I would say that every movie can be made infinitely better by a little Cushing. I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> I, I have movies I like in my co- yeah, I have movies in my collection that I would never have even considered buying if Cushing wasn't in them. Does that include digital Cushing? I do not own Rogue One yet, and I have some mixed feelings about. Rogue One and and mm-hmm. how Cushing was used. I loved the film. I thought Rogue One was fantastic, but I have some issues with how they used Cushing in the film. I mean, it was cool to see him yeah. on the big screen, and it was awesome that a movie that kind of sort of starred Cushing did so well at the box office and was in the news and the press and all that. But the more I watched that the scenes with him, the more a little unnerved, I feel, and not in a good mm-hmm. way. I mean, what about you? Well, I guess because I've been a fan for so long, 
I had this protective nature. That, yeah. You know, they better not mess him up. And I think they tried so very hard mm-hmm. to get the look of Grand Moff Tarkin. And it looked like it was him from the 70s. But the performance, no, it, they, they, they can't match that. They're not yeah. going to. They can make him look in like digital and 3D and make you think you're standing right in front of Peter Cushing. I mean, I know I'm not. But if they do, they're never going to match what he had in his soul. There's the story that Carrie Fisher used to tell about the one shot or the one scene in the original Star Wars where she has to say, I could smell your foul stench, you know, about oh, Grand yeah. Moff Tarkin. But she would say that it was really hard to say because the man smelled like lilacs. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I feel like that might have been what was missing in Rogue One. This <laughs> is knowing that Peter Cushing was there. I don't know. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> Well, it had to uh, for for Carrie Fisher, bless her heart. That had to be overwhelming. It's like this is Peter Cushing. I'm in a scene with Peter Cushing. Yeah. How amazing is this? You know, yeah. uh, for a very young actress at the time, that had to be overwhelming. You know, well, yeah, any of them, basically. any any of them, really. I mean, granted, David Prowse and and Peter Cushing had worked mm-hmm. together before. Um, and, oh yeah. And Harrison Ford. I don't know what his thoughts would have been, but Mark Hamill knew what these movies were. Mark Hamill yeah. was, is, a, is a monster kid. You know, he you would have known you. who Peter Cushing was, and I'm sure he was upset that he didn't get any scenes with the guy, you know? <laughs> so I totally yeah, get exactly. it. Yeah. There's just something about Peter Cushing, man. There's something about Peter Cushing. He, he was the real thing. I mean, mm-hmm. no matter if he was Professor or Dr. Van Helsing or whether he was Dr. Frankenstein, either way, you believed him. And he's even been Doctor Who. Yes, thank you. I love bringing up Doctor Who films any chance I get because I love those Peter Cushing films. I'm not a Whovian. Mm -hmm. I I don't watch Doctor Who on TV. I'm very naive when it comes to all things Doctor Who on TV. Uh But I have watched the films, the two Cushing films, over and over again. I got them on Blu-ray. I love them. Oh, Blu-ray. That would be the way to watch them, too. Oh, man. They're awesome. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay. Now I'm jealous again because now – I'm going to have to save us some money to find those because I know a lot of Whovians and I watch Doctor Who on TV and I can consider myself something of an old Whovian. Mm-hmm. But I looked at the films as kind of Doctor Who, but separate. Right. And I think that's what a lot of people do. Because I'm not going to say anything to diss Peter Cushing. So I'm like, he's in it. I'm going to check this out. And I liked it. You know, he agreed to do a movie with, uh, was it Troy McClure or whatever his name is? In that journey to the center of the earth. For some fans, they're like, well, I don't like to count that movie, you know. Oh, no, man. No, it's all but good. No, it, it, was, it was good. It was fun. Sure. And it's actually, even the Rift Tracks version is kind of fun to watch as well. I, that's the last time I watched it uh, was actually through Rift Tracks. And I was, oh, okay. That wasn't half bad. It was very funny. And they weren't um, demeaning or towards Cushing. So like I said, you, when you become a fan like that, you tend to get protective of the actor or the character. Sure. And so it's like, they better not mess this up. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. But he, he never, he never ever not delivered. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. And Christopher Lee as well. You know. Sure. Well, and you put those two, two of them, Oh, I was about to say that just the same thing you were about to say. I'm the two of them together. Oh yeah. I mean, talk about a one, two double time punch. I mean, Wow. 
Mm-hmm. Those two on when they're on screen together, yeah, it is electric. It is mesmerizing. You can't take your eyes off Lee, but you're also looking at Cushing. What's he going to do? You know, you're not eating your popcorn at this point. You're not drinking your soda. You are watching the film. Sure. And watching these two against each other. When you see a Hammer film, or, or really any film, and Cushing's in it, awesome. If Christopher Lee's in the movie, awesome. You put the two of them together, and suddenly you've got an experience. Uh, Horror of Dracula is great. I like Brides of Dracula quite a bit, but that movie's missing Christopher Lee. I love Taste of Blood of Dracula, but that movie's missing Peter Cushing. You put the two of them together, and they, they don't have to be vampire films. You know, like Gorgon. You know, it's fantastic. That's Sherlock yeah. Holmes movie I mentioned. Yeah. G- Get away from Hammer. Horror Express is fantastic. I mean, y- you put them together and you're going to have magic. And I know that over the years they became dear friends. And you can kind of, you can see that in the films. Their chemistry yeah. is is palpable. That's kind of the way my head was going with it too. Palpable. That, yeah, their chemistry on screen it's out well that or i was gonna say it was electric like you know you just yeah you can't you can't not watch it even if you're i think if someone going into it for the very first time they're like oh let me check this out you know steve keeps going on and on about this maybe i'll watch this and you know <laughs> and I'm, I'm i'm convinced that by the end of it they're gonna be like that was incredible yeah <laughs> those two guys are cool you know and well, yeah, that's what I've been telling you, because I will tell everyone about Hammer films. My poor wife of 35 years has had to endure it, but she's grown to appreciate them, too. So we don't. her and I don't always agree on what films we like to watch, but she doesn't diss the Hammer films. As a matter of fact, she'll sit there and, oh, you're watching a Hammer film, aren't you? Yes, I am. And she'll, well, you know, and then she'll sit and watch it with me, whereas... Trust me, with the Kaiju films, she leaves the room. She's like, oh, whatever. And goes, <laughs> but she loves me, and that's why I said we've been married 35 years, and she's endured my monster films, and I've endured the Hallmark Channel. So, you know, it works out. Oh, um, okay then. Yeah, I don't <laughs> – <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm in, a, I'm in a, an amazing relationship with an amazing woman who – appreciates the really good movies. And like I was telling Alistair Hughes, uh, who was just on the show, um, I think I probably did this off mic with him or, or off recording where uh, he asked me about Brenda watching the monster movies with me. And I said, I, I pick my battles, you know, <laughs> I, I know <laughs> exactly. uh, what I can show her and what I, I can show her if I want her to leave the room. So, you know, I <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. It's a give and take thing. Exactly. <laughs> so something about Horror of Dracula that I had forgotten, uh, and I can't believe I forgot something about Horror of Dracula, but as soon as Peter Cushing and Michael Goff, you know, Van Helsing and Holmwood, go to the little checkpoint, the little gate station, oh, uh-huh. I had forgotten about how Hammer tried to inject a little bit of comedy here, a little bit of levity. Exactly, yeah. And and I was a little worried because, like I said, I had forgotten about it. Because when I think about Horror of Dracula, I don't think, oh, it's a barrel of laughs. You know, I don't think it's got funny moments. But I felt like it worked just fine. And I love the bit where Michael Goff has made eye contact with the, t- with the official as he's sliding the, the money <laughs> onto the table, yeah. you know, down that little, that, I don't know what you call it, but with, you know, the the metal post with the paper you stick on it, whatever. Um, 
as oh, he's putting them. He is a doctor. I suppose it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I love that moment. Uh, I, yeah. I love that idea, and and this this is one of the things that I respond to as well. The investigation part of it. I mean, I'm a huge Lovecraft fan, and obviously. You know, somebody who used to play role-playing games, the Call of Cthulhu thing, and the role of the investigator. I love that part, too, when it comes to these monster movies. You have to investigate. So having Holmwood and Van Helsing doing the research, going to a place that's got records of who came and went that day, trying to track yeah. this stuff down, and then giving it just a little bit of, of, of fun, of comedy. I loved that, too. And, and I felt like it fit. It was injected at the right time, I believe, because things were getting more and more intense. You knew things were building to a climax. And so, yeah, it got very tense. So having that little bit of levity with the guy at the checkpoint and then with slipping the money in, like you mentioned, and Michael Goff uh, doesn't get enough credit. His, he's great in this. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of kids are going to know him that he played Alfred in, uh, Batman, was it Batman Forever, I think. But um, oh, well, all, all four of the uh, Batman films, he was... Alfred, uh, the four of that era. So, oh, that's true. Yeah, he was like mm. the only connecting between, well, that, I guess, the commissioner. Either way. But that's where I think younger people are going to know who Michael Goff is. But mm-hmm. to see him in these older films, you get to see more of what he actually can do. And you're right, the look on his, on his face as he's kind of sliding, kind of holding the money out in front of him. No, that's not getting it. Slide it towards him a little bit. Here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, the guy's like, oh, okay, I, you guys are all right. Let's go. And, well, you are a and doctor. I think <laughs> he is a doctor, after all. Yeah, I think Hammer did a very good job of injecting the humor in there, because if I had to put humor in at any other time in the movie, it wouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. We needed to build up to this crescendo. But before we build up and get too much into it, let's put a little adagio in here. Yeah, it's like the... Like a, like a musical score. Okay, now we can move on to the big stuff. And when we do, we, I have to agree, uh, Hammer is not known for their comedy and uh, and probably maybe with good reason in other movies, but in this, it worked. Uh, in this one, it actually fit and it fit proper. Because you almost expect comedy and they, at the end, in the beginning, like, you know, is this going to be a, you know, a fun scene where he walks in and everyone goes quiet and the music stops. And nope, they didn't do any of that. It just mm-hmm. played on as it should. So, for the record, listeners, I-, I want it noted here. Steve is the first person to mention anything regarding music when he compared <laughs> the, 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 the comedy here is a little bit of the musical bit. The music, though. <laughs> oh, well, the, yeah, the music. Wow. James Bernard. So good. Oh, yeah. I can't say enough good things about him. He's one of my favorites. And I mean, I've heard a lot of different scores over the years, but the score in Horror of Dracula, just everything. You know, I guess another way to put it, it's like a puzzle. It's like a puzzle. And the music is a big part of that puzzle that comes in because it adds to the drama. It adds to the tension. If it wasn't there, you would notice the difference. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine this film. I can't imagine any Hammer film that he did without his music. It becomes a vital part of everything here. And, of course, you know the trick that he would, in his head as he's composing it, sing the title of the movie you know, to the opening credit. You know, Dracula, 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 you know. Um, just, <laughs> yeah. and so, of course, I'm doing that in my head during the opening credits. But, oh, man. 
it's such a, a mood setting piece. Mm-hmm. It, it's got the gothicness to it. It's got the grandeur that you need. And this wasn't his first Hammer film. He'd been working with Hammer since uh, the Quatermass experiment a couple of years prior. Wow. But yeah. he became so associated with, with Hammer that if we don't mention James yeah. Bernard, people might take my film score geek card away from me. So I have to mention him. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's like you said, he became kind of the house musician, mm-hmm. but with good reason. He never not delivered. Every time with every movie, just everything just worked out so well and, and fit perfectly. And there are people that I know that can edit music out of a movie when they watch it. And some, I got friends of mine who can do that. I don't know how they do it, but they'll, they'll watch it with a different soundtrack or something. Why would you do that? I don't that? mess around with it. Yeah. Why would you huh? do that with this? Why would you do that I with this no film? Why would, exactly. This one fits it perfectly. I can't imagine any other music. So just it stays as is. It holds up as is. Yeah. Which Indeed. I, you know, again, the, the test of time, we're talking a movie that came out in 1958, even today in 2018, it still works. Yeah. So much so, uh, last night when I got home from the film, I mean, I was, I was jazzed. I was like, man, I just got horror Dracula, you know, so I was kind of buzzing and I was, it was like almost midnight when I, like, I, I know I got to get up early tomorrow, but I'm still in the mood. So I went online and started looking at horror of Dracula things here and there. And somebody took the finale scene of horror of Dracula or Dracula and using all the different com- uh, available cuts of the film, you know, the the fabled Japanese cut that has a little bit more of the disintegration scene and, and the British cut yeah. versus what was released in the U.S., they, they took it all and put it together into one long scene. So it's the longest finale scene you can ever see of the film by putting it all together from all these different sources. Because the timing's a little off and the music is such an essential part of that, whoever put this video together, and, and bravo for doing it, you know, for putting the video together, but to make the music fit, they went in and they artificially slowed it down because, uh-huh. you know, the film, the music was composed to a very specific scene with specific beats in mind, and it wasn't going to work otherwise. So they, they slowed it down to make it fit, and it just didn't work. There's something about that music, and, and maybe it's because I've listened to it so many times and I have certain expectations about where it's supposed to swell and where the drums are supposed to hit and, or, or, or the, the bass is supposed to come in. There's just something about it. It just didn't work any other way than the way that it was composed by Bernard. It's like John Williams and Star Wars movies. I can't imagine anyone else doing the score for Star Wars except him. Mm-hmm. And other people have, but they are always compared to John Williams, so... The same for Bernard here. I don't think he gets enough credit for it. You know, I think they just take it as a, oh, yeah, he did the music, whatever. But I don't look at it that way. Not at all. Not at all. You think Hammer films, you think James Bernard, just like Star Wars, John Williams, Tim Burton movies, Danny Elfman. I mean, there are just mm-hmm. certain associations that you make uh, with with the music and the composers. And, man, we live in a very fortunate time where a lot of this music by Bernard has been released digitally or on CD. And yeah. I got to tell you, man, I play the heck out of it <laughs> year <laughs> round. It doesn't have to be Halloween or October. Oh yeah, This is all I listen to, man. Sometimes it's wonderful. I'm someone, I'm someone who will play the monster mash in April, you know, just because I like the song and it doesn't have to be a Halloween song. You can listen to the monster mash anytime you want. There you go. Indeed, sir. Indeed. Well, we've talked a lot 
about a lot of different things about the film. The use of blood. Compared to some movies that Hammer would do later, yeah, there's blood, but it's not over the top, and I think it's a little less bloody than some people think. That said, I think it's the first time we saw this much blood in a Dracula film or, or vampire film. Oh, well, yeah. They, they had never shown blood like this. And as, even as a kid, I had noticed that, wow, their blood is like glowing red. Yeah. It's so bright red. And I found out later that they did that on purpose. They wanted to make sure you saw that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I'm an ex-nurse. I know what color blood is when it comes out. And it does come out red, but not fire engine red. You know what I mean? <laughs> But in Horror Dracula, the blood is kind of subdued. I mean, there's blood in scenes where, you know, stakes are going in and you see blood trickling from mouths, but not overly so. You know, later they would add more and more, mm-hmm. but at this point, tastefully done, but with a little push of the envelope, just a slight push. Yeah. Yeah. I think Curse of Frankenstein had a little bit more gore for, for that. For lack mm-hmm. of a better term, this one it does have the blood kind of coming out of the mouths, or you see a sated vampire in their coffin, and you see the blood like running down the side of their mouth, like they forgot to clean up before going to bed. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know that sort of thing. You know, but it, it's not over the top. That said, it does stand out when you see it. Well, I, and I've heard many people say this, and, and right, I've read it as well. This movie signaled a huge change when it came to how we're going to present horror by showing the blood just in the opening sequence alone. When the camera moves in on the coffin and you see that it's, you know, Dracula and before the credits are over, or maybe just as they're over, blood is dripping on the coffin. Dripping down over his name, yeah. Yeah. You, You don't know where it's coming from. Is it relevant to the story? No. But it signals what kind of movie you're about to see. But it's not like, you know, a lot of current movies where heads up, if you're in the first 10 rows, you will get splashed. <laughs> like going yeah. to a Gallagher show in, with red. Um, <laughs> but they tastefully did it. But yeah, like I said, they pushed the envelope just a little bit, has mm-hmm. a little bit of that English restraint that I want to do this, but I don't want to overdo it. Right, right. Later on in Hammer's filmography, we start seeing more blood. We start seeing a lot more cleavage. But I feel mm-hmm. like, you know, Curse of Frankenstein, <laughs> Horror of Dracula. <laughs> listen to you. Um, Curse of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula. Th- these are pretty early in, in the run, and they haven't quite gotten to that point. So I yeah. can't imagine anybody listening to the show hasn't seen Horror of Dracula yet. But in case you haven't, do not be put off by the stereotype that all Hammer films have tons of cleavage. It, it, it's not there. It's tasteful. There's a couple of nice-looking women, but, you know. Apparently, Dracula likes his women wearing nightgowns. Um, so <laughs> so we see them in nightgowns, which seem to also have a push-up bra underneath. But, <laughs> but like you said, it's not in this movie, it's not so prevalent. It's not mm-hmm. so the camera doesn't like linger on it. Right. It's like you see it and like, oh wow. And then we're on to something else. And then in later films, heaving bosoms were r- running rampant. Not that I'm complaining. <laughs> if the camera ever does linger on a woman's breasts, it's because Van Helsing is about to put a stake right in the middle of them. It's not yeah, you, you know, it's not to exploit it. So yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Enjoy it now. It's not going to last. Oh, no. 
Well, is there anything else about the movie uh, you feel like we should talk about here? I mean, we, we've sat here and we've gushed about this film a lot. And we've talked about the music, the the, main, the, the blood, the, the set design, the performances. What else have we missed here? I guess we haven't talked about the director, Terrence Fisher. Not the first time he worked for Hammer. Well, he directed Curse of Frankenstein, right? He did uh, Curse of Frankenstein. He did a few other films, The Unholy Four, which is a, a Hammer film. He did Spaceways in 53, Four-Sided yeah. Triangle. I mean, he'd been working with Hammer, uh, Man Bait, Stolen Face, even during the quote-unquote film noir era of Hammer. He worked for them as well. But you get to Curse of Frankenstein, and he's in his comfort zone, man, or he made it his comfort mm-hmm. zone. He always called these films fairy tales for adults. And while I I do see some of that in Curse of Frankenstein, I really see it in the horror of Dracula. Um, And and I was was thinking about that while I was watching it last night when Van Helsing walks into the little bar, the little tavern. There's just something very fairy tale-like about that scene that really drove that point home for me. Most definitely. Did so much incredible work for Hammer and, and otherwise. I mean, he, did. He, he he did some other great films as well. Island of Terror, not for Hammer. Still stars Cushing. Um, the Earth Die Screaming he did, which is fantastic. Uh, he did end his career with Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, which is appropriate because, oh, yeah. you know, make the final Frankenstein film for Hammer. Just mm-hmm. the man did so much. And if people haven't explored Terrence Fisher's filmography outside of just Dracula or just Frankenstein, you're missing out. There are directors that are literally overrated, but there's a lot of them that are underrated that don't get the accolades that a lot of other directors get. I mean, heck, William Castle gets more accolades than Terrence Fisher. And while I love William Castle films, do not get me wrong, I do. I love them with my heart and everything. But as a director, not not that great. Terrence Fisher, (laughs) really, really great director, but doesn't get a lot of the props because of the performances and everything else that we just talked about. It's almost like he's off to the sideline, but, but without him, we wouldn't have all this. So there you mm-hmm. go. You have to have to include him in the accolades along with how much we gush over fishing and Lee and principal photography, cinematography and soundtrack. Got to include him as well. Sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you bring up William Castle. I love William Castle films too. But oh, I do too. Oh my gosh, you know. The, the, he's not a subtle so director, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's fun, over-the-top fun, and it's great. And he was good at what he did. But I think the mm-hmm. reason a lot of people know who William Castle was is because he always appeared in the trailers or at the beginning of the film. Hi, I'm William Castle. Terrence Fisher never did that. So. No. <laughs> you know, he's definitely a name I feel like people should be familiar with. Castle did it because Hitchcock did it. Yep. You know, Hitchcock would be front and center and like, if you've ever watched the preview for Psycho, mm-hmm. it's pretty much all Alfred Hitchcock walking us along, saying something bad happened here, a murder happened here, this goes on, and it's just him, and the camera's following him, and then it cuts to the, the music, you know, and, <laughs> and Hitchcock was in all his films. Uh-huh. You go to a Hitchcock movie, well, where's Hitch? Where am I going to see him now? Yep. And so he became someone who got accolades, Now he deserved them, because he was an extremely great director. But he kind of liked the limelight a little. I think maybe Terrence Fisher maybe shied away from that. It's like, look, I just want to make a good movie and get paid, but I don't want you know to be on any of your entertainment shows. You know, don't want to be interviewed. Just you know, talk talk to Peter and Chris. 
Yeah, I, admittedly, I don't know much about the man, uh, the man's personal life. I, I'm familiar with his filmography quite a bit, but yeah. I, I don't know. Did he like doing publicity? Did he do interviews? Were there? I know there have been written interviews over the years that have surfaced or, or have been reprinted, and I know he did that. But you know, for the most part, I don't know anything about the man. Yeah, I don't, and I don't know much either. Whoever this man was that made him the director that he was, that that's evident on the screen. So oh, oh, Terrence yeah. Fisher. It, it comes out in the work. Yeah, that's the thing. Check out this man's work if you haven't. Hammer or otherwise, the man was amazing. Did some incredible, incredible work. That that sideline aside, what, is there anything else that we should mention about the movie before we wrap up? Well, we should probably do this. Is there anything about the movie that you don't like? You know, not really. I mean, this film, for me, is pretty solid from start to finish. What about you? Mm-hmm. I can't think of anything. When I was watching yeah. it last night, I did it with a, you know, with the eye of, okay, is there anything about this that I can pick on a little? Like, I can't believe they did this, or, well, you know, why, you know, this is a mistake. Why they, couldn't find anything? You know what? Let me take that back. There is one thing I'd, I'd do differently if I was, if I had the power to go back and change one thing. I think the yeah. one thing that I would change is that official that works in you know at the gate that they have the scenes mm-hmm. with a couple of times, swap him out with Michael Ripper. There you go. Hey, that that's the one thing I would do differently. <laughs> but other than and, and I don't even dislike that guy that's in the film, but put in Michael Ripper because Michael Ripper is a hammer mainstay, and there you go. Mm-hmm. Then it's a perfect yeah. move. <laughs> there, there you go. I'd have to agree with that. I say I because I, I could see that. I can see him in there. So yeah, most. But not to denigrate, like you said, not to denigrate what was on there, because it was it was fine. It's mm-hmm. a very solid film that, like I said, it lasts. It has lasted. I'm hoping that generations to come will find it and say, "Oh, hey, this is really awesome." Yep. And you know, thank you, thank you, Hammer Films, um, for your body of work. But this was towards the beginning of Hammer, and they knew what they were doing. Yeah, solid, solid stuff. And thank you, Steve, for uh, being patient with me as we were trying to figure out the best way to bring you onto the show and the best movie to talk about. Oh, and when I saw you mention Horror of Dracula a while back, I was like, okay, this is this has got to be the one because I adore this film. And I appreciate yeah, you working with me in terms of scheduling because we actually were going to uh, record this last weekend. But with it screening here last night, this is just perfect. Like the best way to the start the weekend is watching horror of Dracula and then talking about it with a friend the next day. So this is perfect for me. Thank exactly. you. I've, I've enjoyed it immensely. I could do this again and again. This is my wheelhouse. I'm like I said, I'm, I'm an old monster kid. Uh, 60 is around the corner going, come on, fat boy, let's dance. And oh, no. I, but, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, it's not for a few years yet. I got a few years yet, but, that having been said, yeah, when you're a monster kid, you don't really grow up. Not that much. Right. You can, exactly. do, the, you can do the adulting if you have to, but it's given the choice of that I'm allowed to, can I go adult or can I binge watch this and this? I'm going to want to binge watch because that's just my nature. Sure. I have to force myself to be an adult. <laughs> yep that's 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 really yeah you grow up but don't grow old that's that's the thing it's not as fun as herman munster made it out to be you know what steve i want to end on that because that's that's a perfect ending right there <laughs> okay yeah, all right <laughs> 
Steve, it was a blast chatting with you about Horror of Dracula. The only thing that would have made it better is if you were in Portland when I had a chance to see it on the big screen at the Northwest Film Center last month. That's the only thing that would have made this conversation better, man. You know, I know you're a big kaiju movie fan, so uh, let's find a kaiju film to talk about the next time we have you here on Monster Kid Radio. Thanks again, Steve. of the unholy four. Now he's on his way back to the land of the living to avenge his own murder. Terror was his only weapon. Wherever he went, his presence awoke their fear and guilt. None of the four was safe from him. Hello, Job. Vic, we thought you were dead. None of them could be trusted. Not even his wife. The wife he'd waited four long years to accuse with all the rest. Your corpse doesn't write to his executioner and say, I'm coming back. But I heard a voice. It said, turn around, Vickers. It said, I want to watch your face as you go down. Now, let me hear you say it, Bill. You're crazy. It must have been your voice. Let me hear you say it, Bill. How often has this happened to you? You're on your way home after a long day when suddenly tragedy strikes. No human mind could imagine the enormous destructive power of this maddened, killing thing. Yes, sir, there's a big lizard back there and he's heading this way. Now get aboard! It's the kind of thing which can ruin your weekend. To prevent catastrophe, you need the Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack. This book features extensively researched methods to help you survive a giant monster event. You'll discover which vehicle you should use for making your escape, which method of counterattack is best for specific types of monsters. Hydrogen weapons, capable of wiping cities, countries off the face of the earth, are completely ineffective against this creature from the skies and what common mistakes people make while fighting back. So pick up your copy of The Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack by Anthony Wendell today on Amazon. You can thank us by surviving. Suddenly, a man dies at the controls of a train. Suddenly, a car swerves to destruction. Suddenly, a plane dives to death. The Earth dies screaming. Suddenly, death descends on the four corners of the Earth, and only a handful of human beings survive to live in fear, powerless to combat an unknown terror. Turn it off. Who are you? That way, I'm not the enemy. I don't know who the enemy is.
The Earth dies screaming and the robots take over. Starring Willard Parker, Virginia Field. Dennis Price. You said that she was dead. She was. She was alive enough tonight. Except her eyes. Well, what was the matter with them? She hasn't got any eyes. Here is paralyzing suspense as the Earth dies screaming. Electrifying terror as the Earth dies screaming. Jeff! Peggy! Peggy! The robots! What? Peggy! a patron of monster kid radio one of the rewards is to hear your name here on the show when i go through the executive producer roll call why don't we go ahead and get to that right now Special thanks to Ken Blows, Tammy Anschwitz, Jeremy Lamastis, Steve Turek, Jeffrey Owens, Karen Joan Kahodic, Paul Curtis, Tracy and Scott Morris, Jonathan Angarella, Jason Spear, Andrew Roebuck, Alistair Hughes, Terry Mount, Justin Giallo, Thomas Broussard, James Smith, Daniel Cornell, Mitch Gonzalez, Mike Tutino, Eric Peterson, and Jeff Plier. Thanks for supporting the show at the Toho level or higher. If you're interested in becoming a patron of the show and being included in the executive producer roll call or maybe seeing your name on the website or even getting some of the secret behind-the-scenes deleted... Is it still footage of us? Yes, audio? But deleted audio, which I just put out for our October patrons that support the show at the hammer level or higher, check out patreon.com slash monsterkidradio. was the scientific marvel of the century, a mighty juggernaut to blast through the solid rock of the Earth's mantle at a rate of 78 feet per minute. 4,000 miles into the heart of our planet. We've been on top of the Earth long enough. About time we found out what's underneath. Who's cut it? starts activating now. Steadying the throttles. Grand scale adventure from the world's favorite writer of fascinating fiction, Edgar Rice Burroughs at the Earth's core, the astounding discovery of a strange forbidding land. Only seen it before in fossilized form. A primeval nightmare world whose shadows hid the nameless terrors that were yet to come. <laughs> Humans of another age, chained in bondage by an army of ape men, preyed upon by monstrous giants. Yeah, the sly one will lead Jubal the ugly one back here. I heard about him. 
David, he will kill you. Watch him, David. Behind a barrier of molten lava, an empire of evil, an inferno ruled by winged creatures like guardians of the gates of hell, a host of Satan's nourished by the flesh of sacrificial maidens. journey of your life. Edgar Rice Burroughs at the Earth's core. This is the voice of a woman dreaming of her lover. Oh, please, darling, me close. I love you so much. And this, a woman having a nightmare. Let me out! What are dreams? What do they mean? When you dream, you wander into another world where everything is strange and terrifying. When you dream, you too become a Nightwalker. The Nightwalker brings Robert Taylor and Barbara Stanwyck together again in the film Shocker of the Year. Yes, I do have a lover. Tell me his name. I wish to God I could, but he's only a dream. And now, a warning from producer William Castle. Our new picture, The Nightwalker, may force you to dream of things you're ashamed to admit. If you can't stand your own dreams, don't see The Nightwalker. The Nightwalker. Dracula has risen from the grave. Boy, does he give a hickey. Hi, Derek and Monster Kid Radio. My name is Mike Herman. And I'm a new fan of the podcast. I discovered it about a month ago after hearing the advertisement on the Frankenstein Minute, which is also great. I just thought I'd call in and uh, offer some thoughts on Night of Terror, which is a film I hadn't seen before. And um, it's kind of interesting as a Lugosi fan to see one that, you know, is kind of underrepresented. But I have to be honest, I, I don't know... If I'd say I didn't like it, but it kind of made me sad a little bit because it's already 1933 and um, you have Lugosi hired as a name rather than an actor for his talents. It reminded me a lot of um, that trailer for The Body Snatcher where it sets us up as if uh, Lugosi's Joseph is going to be like the main character and the main plot of the movie is going to be Lugosi and Karloff teaming up, but it's really just an extended cameo. And so that I didn't really care for. But, you know, like you guys said, it's kind of a movie of its time. And, you know, you have to decide as a 2018 viewer where to um, give it a little slack and where to kind of hold it to a standard. Like you guys said, the character Martin was very, very kind of unfortunate and made you kind of feel uncomfortable. I thought I'd offer this point about the film as well. I really think that the screenwriters had at least seen London After Midnight because I think a lot of the same plot points are kind of followed, like the red herring and even the maniac, I think, um, when you get a good look of him at the end when he does the threat to the camera, 
the makeup looks a lot like uh, Cheney's man in the beaver hat, and there's even some pointing he does that uh, looks a lot like some of the stills I've seen for that movie. And so as a big fan of that, I kind of wonder, you know, if this is like a remake of it, an unofficial kind of remake or ripoff of it. Yeah, that was kind of interesting. Um, I just want to give my appreciation to the podcast. I'm very new to it, only about a month in, but I'm really loving it so far and uh, looking forward to Horror of Dracula next week. Thanks. All right. Listen to you. <laughs> avada, avada, avada. What is that? I don't know. <laughs> Hey, thanks for calling in, Mike. And it's always awesome to hear from new listeners of the show. Yes, as and, well. Uh, it's kind of just nice to hear from everyone. This is true. I just like getting more and more people involved with Monster Kid Radio. So thank you for calling in. The Frankenstein Minute Podcast, I am so grateful that they're playing the Monster Kid Radio bumper over there. And I'll make sure that I play the Frankenstein Minute Podcast promo here in a little bit here in the show so people can learn about that. Here? Here. 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 What are you saying? You said here. Here in a little bit here. Here a little bit here. 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 I like and the you're going to do it here. I'm a sound yes. guy. I like the word here. Like I'm hearing stuff. Uh, that's the wrong version of here. Whatever. Hear this. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to do a little bit of feedback here. We haven't had Brenda on the show in a little while. Mm. Partly because I was away at an undisclosed location. Psh, and Brenda was not with me. Arizona. Don't tell them that. With his mother. Don't tell them. Okay. <laughs> and so, a niece it's not really a big secret no, oh, no. I, was, I was down in arizona and i'm going to be putting up a blog post probably within the next couple of days mm. uh, about an experience that i had there at a very very cool bookstore oh that's right yeah so so this is a tease no spoilers not going to say anything about it but oh. follow me over at monsterkidwriter.com and that's where i'll post that do Lori and lexi listen to the podcast? Yeah. Oh, they might. So I shout out know. to Lori and Lexi yes. if they're there. Yes. Niece. Well, sister-in-law and niece. Yeah. So if Lori we do it in the order. Yeah. Uh, was my brother's wife. Yeah. And Lexi is their daughter. Mm-hmm. They're both pretty darn cool. Mm-hmm. Lexi's about to turn 16. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And I think her mother's like, what, 21, 22? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. How, how, does, how does math work when it comes to women's ages? How old are you? I'm 41. Oh, really? What is wrong with you? Remember that time I was wearing my shawl and my hair was a mess and you said you'd love me anyway? Oh, yeah, when you get old. Regardless? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, Night of Terror, Bela Lugosi. Mm. You are absolutely right that once Dracula hit, Lugosi's ability to get really diverse roles, I think, mm. became very small. He was typecast. He, he really was. Now, he had a long career on stage and in film before Dracula, both over in his native country and then here as well, where he did a lot of silent films as well as some other movies leading up to Dracula. Mm. But once Dracula hit, you know, as much as it kind of made him a household name for us monster kids... Didn't really pay the bills long term. And Wednesday, I don't know if you're going to hear that or not, agrees. Yes. Poor Wednesday. Wednesday. Yeah, Wednesday She's so kidding. sad. She's like, you get when you get typecast as a squirt, <laughs> you're always known as a squirt. She's a squirt. Wednesday's a squirt, not Lugosi. No. No. 
No. Yeah. It is a shame. Although I'm glad that he did make some horror films and some genre films for us. I do really love his universal output, his role as Igor in Son of Frankenstein and, and then in Ghost of Frankenstein in that order are amazing. And of course, The Black Cat, uh, The Invisible Ray, which I don't think was universal, but that's also maybe it was. I can't remember. It's also really good. Lugosi's the man. It's just a bummer that after that, the only reason they hired him sometimes was just to be a name on the ticket. Yeah. And, you know, I guess that kind of works um, no. in some cases, but I know he wanted to do so much more. Yeah. He really wanted to be that dashing leading man type. And it didn't happen for him, unfortunately, uh, which, you know, he was a, a good looking dude. He was a striking, handsome looking guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, oh, well, it is what it is. We've got some amazing films now for him. Uh, did it take inspiration from London? Did it London. take inspiration? Yeah, London. That's it. I'm, I'm just going to be raw. I'm not going to London. That London After Midnight show. London. Um, did it take inspiration from London After Midnight? I don't know. I hadn't really considered it. But Mike's right. The maniac does look a little bit like Lon Chaney Sr. from London After Midnight. Mm. At least the pictures that we've seen since it's a lost film and all we have mm. are those stills. And it sounds like it followed a similar sort of plot line. Maybe. It's hard to say because London After Midnight, it's not ah. something we can see. Ah, good point. However, Mark of the Vampire supposedly is kind of sort of a remake of it. Mm. And that we can see. And it also has Lugosi in it. But in it... He's not really a, spoiler, he's not really a vampire. Or is he? Okay, time out. What's going on? So, sure, you put the cat in front of the microphone, she's not going to say nothing. No, she's purring. Oh, is she purring? I it's didn't hear that. It's a share of a purr. Maybe the listeners will hear that. Yes. She's happy to be on the show. <laughs> she's gotten over her sadness about poor Bella. So, speaking of cats, just a shout out to the people who sent us encouraging words on Facebook uh, regarding the adventures we had at the vet oh, with our other cat, Sam. Oh, my goodness. So, <laughs> I don't know if I told you this. When I called our regular vet to make a follow-up visit, they told me that, yes, emergency room fills up before holidays because we were there for a very long time. Four and a half hours at least. Yes, and... It's awful when you're at the vet because it's inevitable people are losing their pets. We sat through two of those. Yes. It and it's so bad because I just want to go wherever they are and hug the person. Mm -hmm. uh, but you never know, like, is that going to make somebody more uncomfortable? Uh, anyway, um, they said that before holidays, emergency rooms just absolutely fill up. And all I can think is... People have put off taking their pet to the vet and then they use an emergency visit to take care of something because it's not like there's a spike in pets getting sick before Thanksgiving. I don't know. Or having emergency. I just don't understand it. But we were there a long time. We were long, there a long time with Sam, who is probably our oldest kitty. Mm, and I think she's kind of tied with smoke. Yeah. And, and so what had happened was uh, I walked in on her and... She looked normal, except for the fact that her head was tilted to one side. like to Very tilted. And it was like she couldn't untilt it. Yeah. And when I first saw it, she was on the other side of the bed on the floor and poked her head around the corner. And I, I thought it was actually kind of cute. She's yeah. like, hmm? You know, poking her head around. <laughs> With the tilt. But she, she couldn't straighten her head. And, and yeah. it didn't hurt her when I, like, picked her up and moved her yeah, and all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So we called our regular vet. They said we're booked. Called the emergency vet. And yeah. And so we're thinking stroke. Stroke. Vestibular disease. Did you say it right? Because I, I struggled so. with it every time. That's why I never said it out loud at the vets. <laughs> I mean, it's like an idiot. Or ear infection. You know, we're like, let's roll the dice and hope it lands on ear infection because she has high blood pressure. I don't know. Do people really care about this? <laughs> I just am saying yeah. thank you to yes. everybody on Facebook yes. who gave us a shout out and support. Well, here's the thing that gets me. We have all this expensive medication. We have a follow-up visit scheduled because her blood pressure was alarmingly high, which might mean it was a stroke. We get home. Uh, she's exhausted. And so she lays down on our heating pad. And the next time we go check on her, yeah. she's absolutely fine. Within less than a couple of hours. Fine. You know, she totally goes back fine. there, lays down, goes to sleep. We go and check on her and she's like, what? What's up? Yes. Like she just had a tight muscle or something. Who knows? Tweaked a muscle getting down off the bed or something because she won't use the stairs we bought for her. Yeah. So we just admitted now that we're cat people who bought stairs for our cats. Well, of course. She's like, <laughs> they're both 16. At least. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Big thanks to everybody who gave yes. me support on Facebook about it. Sam is doing pretty good right now. So. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. And while I'm glad she's doing fine, I am a little irritated. <laughs> <laughs> like, great. I'm glad you feel good. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you feel expensively great. <laughs> so this week is the week of Thanksgiving. You mentioned uh, yes. the holiday and everybody going to the vet before the holiday and all yes. that. We're recording this Wednesday night, Thanksgiving Eve. Yes. Uh, let's see. What would that make today? That would make this... The 21st. Uh, well, I mean, for you normals, it's November 21st. But for me, let's see. Carry the one, do the math. It's October 52nd. October allottest? I think it's I think it's October 52nd by the time this goes out. Right. Or we're recording anyway. Uh, for Thanksgiving, we don't do a heck of a lot, but I'm sure at some point I'm going to drive you nuts by insisting we put in a monster movie, maybe even King Kong in the background for a little bit. Why? Because it's Okay, can we talk about how um, it's you keep saying, oh, we don't do a lot, but I will be spending hours in the kitchen. I will be doing a lot. Oh, I no, I mean, we're not going anywhere. We're not having anybody over. And I'm going to help you in the kitchen. I'm just saying King Kong is something – I've never done it on Thanksgiving, but traditionally for a long time, King Kong got played on Thanksgiving Day. It was just a thing. So I might just put it on in the background while we're in the kitchen together. Or we could listen to Limetown. <laughs> it's true. Just started listening to the Limetown podcast, and oh, it's really good too. Anyway – so we got Thanksgiving coming up, and I thought I'd give you an opportunity to tell the listeners what you're thankful for. Well, I guess I'm thankful for you. There we go. That's all we need. <laughs> all right. Moving on. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for the kitties. I'm thankful that we have examined traditions and determined whether or not uh, they fit for us. And we've taken that thoughtful approach in our life. Um, I'm thankful. I don't know. I mean, I'm thankful that even though I have an aggressive disease, we live in a day and age where at least it's uh, understood and not considered like a whiny woman disease kind of thing. <laughs> 
like things like this would be? Uh, what else am I thankful for? Dry, warm clothes out of the dryer. Soft beds that I can, like, cuddle into when I don't have to get up early. Hoodies or anything with a hood. That's only because you like to flip it up and say, I'm from the hood, yo. It's true. (laughs) It's true. I do like to say I'm from the hood. (laughs) (laughs) And I am grateful for fingerless um, govies where there's no separation between the fingers. Fingerless gloves. Yes, but not the ones that hug the base of each finger. Those, I don't understand why they exist. Okay. Mm, Did you say the cats? Coffee. I think I did in the beginning. And and Bela Lugosi. Coffee. I'm grateful for coffee. I'm grateful for things that exist out there that you are happy about. (laughs) (laughs) That you like a lot. What else? I don't know. I just thought I'd give you a chance to riff a little bit on Thanksgiving. Mm. Ditto. Anyway. (gasps) (laughs) What What are you grateful for? I think I'm grateful for my wife. You better be. (laughs) You know, here's the thing. We have a lot of stressors in our life, whether it's my being unemployed or, excuse me, separated from my company (laughs) and, and not getting a lot of work otherwise or your rheumatoid arthritis or, you know, some of the other things that we deal with in our life. Uh, the fact that UPS dropped the ball on a package that we were supposed to have delivered yesterday. but Expensive package. Yeah, it's gone. I feel like that all said, you and I have built yes. our own traditions, our own things, our own little familial unit yes. here that that seems to work on an emotional and, and just, I don't want to say spiritual, but just on a, a, a soulful level. Yes. And despite all the garbage, you know, that's out there that we have to deal with, like your yes. disease or, or income and all that yes. stuff. Yes. And I'm grateful for the people we have selected as our family and some of the people that are our family. And I'm grateful for people listening to this show. There we go. Let's bring it back to the podcast. We're <laughs> thankful for the Monster Kid Radio. Yes. Uh, let's see. What does Ken call them? The Monster Kid Radio heads? No. <laughs> So, thankful, and I'm thankful for an email that we got. Oh, that Segway. was. Mm, I so guess. It's my you know Gmail. who I'm grateful for? What's up? Tom. Tom, I was going to give him a shout out. But he you know what? Let's saved the computer. So, while I was gone at an indis- undisclosed location, indisclosed? Were you going to say indiscreet? I was at an indiscreet location <laughs> I, I, while I was away in Arizona. Tom Doffel took my computer. Goodness, yeah. And. Spent 10 days of quality time with it and and rebuilt it and redid things to it. And now it runs a lot better than it did before. Uh, he's got more RAM and it. it's got a better processor, the whole bit, and it's pretty awesome. So Tom Doffel is the man. Yes. This email came in a few weeks ago, but again, because of where I've been and everything, we just haven't had a chance to actually address it. So mm. take it away, Brenda. All right. Hey, Derek. Hey. Loved the latest episode with you and Scott discussing Fantastic Voyage. I had the opportunity to listen to the entire episode in one sitting as I was on a flight to California for my podcast mate Larry's wedding. 
It's so nice not to have to break an episode up. I really enjoy hearing you two hash out sci-fi films. Since I started listening to MKR a few months ago, I've gone back and listened to all of your Planet of the Apes reviews and had a ball. Anyway, back to Fantastic Voyage. This is one of those films that I like but don't love. I do think the effects have suffered, and they were a chief selling point for the movie. But the concept of shrinking people down and putting them inside the human body is still intriguing. And we have tech, like nanobots, that were actually doing things like this with for drug delivery, for example. So the idea is timeless. I recall seeing this film after I read the Avengers comics that featured the Kree Skull Warrior, which had a subplot in issue 94 where Ant-Man had to go inside the body of the android Vision to save him. I think that was a Kree Skull War. Mm. This is the storyline, which is actually really good. At one point, Ant-Man is attacked by the Vision's equivalent of antibodies. The writer, Roy Thomas, is a huge science fiction fan and was clearly influenced by Fantastic Voyage. Your comments about Donald Pleasance were spot on. (laughs) Really, how could anyone not pick him out as the saboteur? I think his role in Halloween is a rare situation where he's not a bad guy, or at least... A sniveling worm. I have to say something in defense of my beloved War of the Gargantuas. I was all set to go off after hearing Jeff Polier say that he liked Rampage better than Gargantuas. But I tried to see this from his perspective, and I had to look at my own. I saw Gargantuas for the first time when I was six years old. It blew my mind. It seemed Shakespearean in its heights. Two monster brothers, one good, one evil, murder, betrayal, and finally death for both. (laughs) When you put it like that. (laughs) The next day at school, a bunch of us were all wound up over it, acting it out over and over. So I might, just might, have a slightly irrational affection for this movie. Looking at it now, yes, I can see Russ Tamblin is terrible. (laughs) He said at one show he was stoned while making it, and that is not a surprise. But the rest of the actors do a good job. Well, I wouldn't mind if the song The Words Get Stuck in My Throat got caught from the film. (laughs) Sorry. Got cut from the film. Did I say caught? I might have. It's okay. It's okay. I knew what you meant. Are the effects old? Sure. But I still get the chills seeing Gyra's face. I think that's right. Okay. In the water under the fishing boat. Sometimes there are things you can only do with men in suits. (laughs) That needs to be on a t-shirt. Oh, an idea for a t-shirt design. Actually, no, that's okay. Okay. I get it. If you didn't see it as a kid, it might seem just like a goofy kaiju film. But there's a reason this particular film is so often cited by fans as a favorite. I think it's that human element of familial conflict. You don't get that with Godzilla. Okay, jumping off my soapbox, I hope Scott had a happy birthday, and I'll definitely check out he and Tracy's super duper trip report. (laughs) Thanks again for another fun show, Derek. Karen Walker from Planet 8 Podcast. And the website address should be there as well. Yeah, it's Planet 8 Podcast. The 8 is the numeral. .blogspot.com. I recommend that. It's got the Monster Kid Radio seal of approval. Their mm. most recent episode is a tribute to Stan Lee, and it's really good. Mm. Um, 
So, Karen, thank you for writing in and to kind of go backwards. Okay. So, Scott and Tracy did have an amazing time. And the latest episode of Disney Indiana, they do start talking about that. Okay. So, you can catch up with them and hear about their amazing trip. And boy, they went to Universal, man. (laughs) They went to Universal and did all sorts of cool stuff. Plenty of pictures. So, we were living vicariously through their Facebook posts, Mm -hmm. basically. Or the Gargantuous. You know... I, I see where Jeff's coming from. It is what if he doesn't like it, he doesn't like it. You know, I don't think he's wrong in his opinion because, well, it's his opinion, and, and he had some pretty good reasons as to why. Mm-hmm. I think Russ Tamblin is not so great in the film. He's no Nick Adams. He should have been Nick Adams, or I would have settled for Raymond Burr for crying out loud. But Russ Tamblin, he just doesn't do much for me. But I do like the two brothers. I do like the two gargantuas in that film quite a bit. I think I like Frankenstein Conquers the World more, but I'm still a pretty big fan of it. It's really hard if you see a movie in your childhood and you connect with it strongly, or a book. This has happened for me with books. You go back as an adult, you still enjoy it, but everybody around you is like not into it because you have attached some of that childhood stuff to it. Yeah, and... I remember that a few years ago, several years ago, I stumbled across a an animated feature, an animated movie that I loved from my childhood. And I put it on for us to watch. And you were pretty excited about checking it out with me and watching this movie from my childhood that I hadn't seen in a very long time. And, oh boy, the dialogue was so dated. The humor was terrible. There were racial overtones. And What one man, was this? Animal Olympics. Oh. Yeah, I loved that as a kid so much. But, uh, yeah. Oh, boy. Mm. <laughs> Which then is sad because it ruins a little bit that that memory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Yes, okay. So, fantastic voyage. Yes. I think it's a really solid example of late 60s science fiction, and I could see how it would have an impact on comic book creators of that era. I think anytime you do anything where characters are shrinking down, whether it's Ant-Man getting inside the Vision or anything with the Atom, if you won't bump over to DC, you get some really cool stuff. And some of the visuals in Fantastic Voyage I still think about. Well, and I think she's right. She's saying it's from the 60s, but it's a timeless sci-fi idea. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea. I, You know, shrinking people down, it's fun and funny to think about but i feel like sci-fi can often be prescient the best science fiction is yes i feel like i agree a hundred percent and that's why sometimes the best sci-fi is written by people who know what they're talking about theory wise (laughs) not just story writing wise but theory wise well and and, you know the story is definitely important but i think it says something that the people behind star trek hire people from nasa to fact check them but george lucas didn't bother with any of that with star wars you know i mean i think that's really interesting you know a, a big part of it that that the best science fiction extrapolates upon what's now and sees where it can go i mean are you saying then star trek is better than star wars i'm saying it's a better example of science fiction at yes, least the best yes, star trek yes. is i wasn't a big fan of the first episode of discovery so i don't know and i think enterprise kind of lost some of it too but original trek uh, with the flip up communicators well those yes. are your smartphones the medical yes. bay they've done things like that in the navy there's a lot of stuff there i can't wait until we have a device that you just 
wand it over someone and it tells you what's wrong. Yeah, like, like a full, well, a they scanning. have the full body scanners already. I know, but you have to go into it. At right. some point, hopefully, that will be a much more transportable, much more affordable situation instead of huge magnets that require you to be outside of the room, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you break it down, Star Wars... It's space opera, it's space fantasy, uh, its strengths is not in it being a science fiction story. Whereas I feel like the Star Trek stuff, mm-hmm. its strength is in being science really fiction. thoughtful st- science fiction. Right, and contemplating the pros and cons, risk versus benefit of collaborating with entities different than mm-hmm. humanity, which also can mirror all those issues that come up when communicating between the human species. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. And I think you see a lot of that kind of science fiction, especially in the late sixties and into the seventies, which is kind of the sweet spot for Star Trek anyway. And you get a lot of that and it's just, I mean, 2001 might have had some things in there too. Um, I'm trying to think of other science fiction that might've, been a precursor to well, so why do you think though nothing sci-fi wise has really caught on hard since then and that's a really big overgeneralization. It, it is and i think part of it is audiences tastes and expectations i think yeah, there's the cool whiz-bang factor of watching Spock and Kirk go in and get transported down to a Nazi planet and taking care of business. Yeah, that's cool. But I think Star Trek, you also can enjoy it on the level of, well, what if the, there was another society that developed parallel yes. to ours and what would yes. they have done differently or, or something along those lines? But why isn't that still grabbing people? I don't know because there's a part of me that wants to tie it into the rise of modern special effects and I don't know why. Like, I feel like special effects have made a lot of science fiction more spectacle, more sizzle than steak. And I wonder if part of it is that. Maybe seeing somebody transport in the 60s was an amazing special effect, whereas we see that all the time now. It's not as ooh-ah as a special effect. Maybe. And that's the one special effect in Star Trek that they didn't say, I wonder how we would do this in the future. It was... We don't have a way to show them getting down to the planet, so let's just do this. And it caught on. Um, (laughs) That's an oversimplification, too. But I don't know. I don't know what it is. Like I said, I want to tie it into special effects, but I don't know how. It's just my gut feeling. Hmm. I kind of think the diversity of topics now that back then maybe we just accepted everything as one category of, of, of amazing stuff that we don't really know about. But... Nowadays, there's the technology part, there's the AI part, there's, you know, medical technology in advance, maybe because people know more about what can and can't be done, what's reasonable, what's, I don't know. You know, um, Planet of the Apes, you know, she mentioned Planet of the Apes, uh, late 60s, early 70s. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff to look at in those films beyond that it's just a cool story. There's a lot of really interesting things going on that you can really dive into, which makes sense. Rod Serling was involved in the script of the first one. Whereas the Planet of the Apes remakes, I don't feel have nearly as much. Or to go back to the Star Trek example, when J.J. Abrams came on board to do Star (laughs) Trek, Mm -hmm. he didn't make it a point to tell people that he really liked Star Wars better. And 
the Chris Pine films really are more Star Wars and Star Trek skin mm. than I'm not even going to say classic Trek, but like Next Generation Trek or DS9 Trek or Voyager Trek. So I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I just anyway. I really love science fiction. Even Westworld about yes. theme parks being AI and all that. What do you have in Disney now? The animatronics and everything else going on. They get more and more and more sophisticated. So maybe it's that we don't see it as a whole anymore. What we see is a focus on a very specific area. What if we got AI to the point that they were indistinguishable from humans? And got tired of being treated like AI. Yes. <laughs> so maybe it's more that sci-fi is more divvied out. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Anyway. Maybe it's more widespread so it can't be nearly as subversive. I mean, there's a science fiction is huge. And, it, you know, for a long time, the stuff that we care about was kind of relegated to the nerd closet. You know, I, I don't know if that's part of it. I don't know. Long conversation yeah. that I would love to have further with more people yes. down the line. In so. the meantime, congratulations to Larry. Yes. Thank you for bringing us <laughs> back on track. <laughs> Karen, thank you for writing in. I've been talking to her on Facebook, too. And I, I don't think the Planet 8 podcast has a, a bumper or a promo. Mm. But, Karen, if you're listening and if you guys whip one up, I'll drop it in a rotation yeah. on MKR. be happy to do that for you guys because I like your show. Awesome. So, so that's it uh, for feedback. We just had the one voicemail and the one email, and we're hungry. Yes. So we need to eat dinner. Also, we need to get things cleaned up so we can cook tomorrow. I figured you do that while I took care of food. I... <laughs> uh-huh. 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 Anyway. All right. Thanks for being part of the show, hon. Of Once course. Again, it was awesome to have you back on. Of course. Listeners, if you want Brenda to read your email and give it that extra dulcity, dulcity, velvety what? oomph. What are you, you talking just, about? I'm just asking people to write in so you have more to do on the show. Oh, that is not their job. No, but. They don't have to worry about that. They can write in if they want to. I'm just, okay. Sorry, hon. <laughs> How do you do? We're about to unfold the story of Frankenstein. This is Tom Lang. And this is Bill Evenson. And we're the hosts of a new podcast called Frankenstein Minute. That's right. We've taken the classic Universal Studios Frankenstein films and broken them down minute by minute. And each episode, we're going to dissect one minute of Frankenstein. We'll talk about Colin Clive, who played Henry Frankenstein. Dwight Fry, his hunchbacked assistant. Mae Clark, Henry's fiancée. And of course, don't forget that monster, played by the enigmatic question mark. We'll also talk about the director, James Whale, and the fascinating flourishes he brought to the picture. And Mrs. Percy B. Shelley, Mary, of course, the author of the original novel on which the film was based. And the difference between the novel and the film. This really is a classic film, the one that many point to as the one that started it all. Um, Dracula? Uh, sure. But, you know, seriously, one minute a week? How long is Frankenstein? Frankenstein is 71 minutes. Are you sure we can uh, keep this going for 71 weeks? Oh, sure, no problem. I mean, this is Frankenstein we're talking about, not Dracula. Good point. We'll discuss characters' motivations and talk about the great performances and John Bowles. <laughs> Don't forget Kenneth Strickfadden and his amazing electrical devices. We'll even reveal which of the lead actors grew up in sleepy little Chaska, Minnesota. Frankenstein Minute premieres on August 31st, 2018. Where? 
You know, the usual places, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube. And check us out on FrankensteinMinute.com and Facebook and Twitter, if that's still a thing. Is Twitter still alive? Oh, it's alive. It's alive? It's alive! At the edge of the universe, 400 men and women are probing the immeasurable blackness of space. Their leaders are an Earthman with no fear and a stranger with no heart. Travel beyond our time and solar system into new galaxies, into worlds beyond your dreams. Star Trek, every week, in color on the NBC television network. Friendly visitor or invader from the future? The answer is an escape from the planet of the apes. All new from 20th Century Fox. Rated G all ages. Escape from the planet of the apes. That brings us to the end of the show this week. I want to thank Brenda for being part of the show and, and rejoining me to go through the feedback. And of course, thanks to Ken as well for contributing the famous Monsters of Filmland segment. I'm really digging that segment. And that comic adaptation of Horror of Dracula, I've had a chance to look at that and it is just super cool. That's just so awesome. And of course, thanks to you for listening to the show and supporting the show, retweeting tweets, sharing Facebook posts, giving us honest reviews on the iTunes store, just talking us up. I appreciate you bringing more people to Monster Kid Radio and just, you know, being a monster kid. If you want to know anything about Monster Kid Radio, you can head over to monsterkidradio.net where you're going to find links to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Twitter page, our Patreon account, everything that we've got going on, you're going to find it right over there. This is also where you're going to find the show notes for everything that we've talked about here in the show. So go check that out. Also make sure there's a link to the Hollywood Theater's screening of Nosferatu coming up this upcoming weekend on Saturday. Are you going to be there? Drop me a line at monsterkidradio at gmail.com and well, let me know. Maybe I'll see you. Next week on the show, you know, it's the last week of November. It's the last week before we kick into our next theme month here on Monster Kid Radio. And there's a little bit of business I need to get to. Earlier this year, just not too long ago, in fact, Steve Turek and I conducted a poll about Frankenstein movies. What's your favorite Frankenstein movie? What's the best Frankenstein movie? We're going to go over the results of that poll next week on the show. And then there might be a few other things as well. Stay tuned. Pay attention to monsterkidradio.net because that's where I'll announce what's coming up next week. Until next week, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Dracula. That belongs to the really cool surf band Ted Boys Marinos, which you can find at tedboysmarinosbrazil.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes and check out the album Surf Sessions. Like I said at the top of the show, the digital album. I think I said it was seven. It's actually five. Five dollars for a 14-song digital album? Man, check it out. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name's Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. <laughs>